Okay, let's get started, everyone. I think the imminent snowstorm kept some of our regulars away. The blizzard, the blizzard of 18 is going to go down. We will rebuild. <clears throat> but the faithful are here, the faithful remnant, so that's all that matters. We shut the door of the ark on the rest of them. And... So we're in Deuteronomy, we're moving into chapter 5 now. We've been in the covenant prologue since we started, that's how the book began. The uh, preamble, then the historical prologue, the next section of an ancient Near East suzerain vassal treaty that we know of these from the ancient world. The next section is the stipulations. This is where the king, the sovereign, who was claiming authority in this new relationship that he had established with the people that he had liberated or benefited in some way, would then say, now this is what you're going to do for me, your great king. And he would have them say, you know, like, you're going to give me this much of your money every year, this many of your crops, you're going to pledge your men to the service of my armies if an enemy comes, blah, blah, blah. This is how it would work in the ancient world, these treaties between vassals and sovereigns. Well, God is doing the same thing, but he's doing it with Israel, and he's doing it on a covenant level, on a universal level. So he's ingraining into Israel, and everybody who reads Deuteronomy in that world I am this people's king. I am this people's great sovereign. So if you touch them, you're touching me. That's, what, that's why you would enter into a covenant. It's kind of like a non-evil version of when mobsters would come by your shop and say, hey, you want protection? You give us a little bit of this. And then, but lo and behold, no people rob your store ever. You know, like that's, that's how organized crime works typically. Well, what they're doing is, in theory at least, they're providing something that people in the ancient world, when law enforcement didn't exist, when there wasn't a standing army, when there wasn't you know, just protection, that's what, at least in their own twisted criminal way, that's what they're attempting to do. Now, of course, they do it through manipulation and through violence and through threat and all that stuff. But what God's doing is what was done in the ancient world. That idea is like, hey, you're joined to me in this covenant. Therefore, I am your covenant protector. I am your, as he said to Abraham back in Genesis, your shield and your great reward. So that's the relationship they're entering into. But it's not just this, all right, we made a deal. Now you go your way, I'll go my way. No, remember for the past two years, we've looked at books that say God is moving into Israel. He's left Mount Sinai symbolically and he's moved into the heart of Israel right in their midst in that little portable Mount Sinai known as the tabernacle. So he's going to be dwelling with them. So if he's dwelling in their presence, then their stipulations are going to be much more than just, hey, every year give me this number of virgins from your population and this number of men for my armies and this number of crops and blah, blah, blah. No, it's going to be way more than that. It's going to touch into every realm of who they are. So God's taking this concept that was known in the ancient world of how you served a king or a foreign power, and he's saying, yeah, that's just a hint, an echo, a shadow of how it really should be. Let me show you the real thing. This is how you're really going to serve the, one, the only one who's worthy of being served. The only true king. Not Pharaoh, not the king of Assyria, not the Babylonian king, not any of these kings of the Canaanite city-states, but me, the one true sovereign of the universe. And, and you're going to serve me with everything you've got. Just like you did serve Pharaoh with everything you've got. You've worked, you toiled for 400 years. Now I've liberated you from slavery to him, brought you 
into relationship to serve me. And the word serve and worship is the same word. So that's what God's doing. This section now in Deuteronomy starts in verse four, chapter 4, verse 44, and goes all the way. It's going to go all the way like for 20-something chapters. These are the stipulations. There'll be general stipulations, and then there are specific stipulations. And then there are blessings if you obey and curses if you disobey. There's a, a, pro, a, a reminder to read this in front of witnesses and then renew the ceremony, and then the actual covenant ceremony takes place. And and that's the whole book of Deuteronomy. So now we're moving into the stipulations part. This is the part where people think, okay, well, we've read all this before. We've read some of this before. We have read God's laws and His commandments in Exodus. He gave them in Exodus to these people's parents. So He's now reaffirming. See, if I'm I'm the head of a, a, let's say I'm the head of an empire, and I have faithful vassals, and, and they're led by um, King McLean of this little vassal over here, all right? So I'm the emperor, J.M., and the great king, J.M., and I have done something wonderful for the people of King McLean. Now, here's the thing. If I were to die and my heir take over, then the covenant that we made between our peoples would need to be re-ratified. Like it would need to be, hey, all right, new king, but same relationship. Same thing, if King McLean were to pass away, his heir to the throne would need to reaffirm so we're both on the same page. It's renewing the covenant. It's not a new covenant. It's just saying, okay, there's been a transition of leadership. We need to reaffirm this. Well, God's not going to die, so he's eternal. He's never going to renege on his end of the agreement. But Israel's generation that made the covenant with him did die. There's only three of them left alive. Caleb, Joshua, and Moses. And Moses is about to die at the end of this book. So he's doing that transition. He's reaffirming. He's giving this generation whose parents got the covenant, heard the covenant, broke the covenant, had it reinstated and broke it again, and then died in the wilderness, cut off from the covenant, He's giving this generation, their kids, a chance to unite themselves with the corporate entity of Israel. Every generation had to decide, am I part of Israel? Because God's promise with Israel is going to stand forever. Nothing's going to thwart that. But the question is, but who's in Israel? Who's, Who's Israel? That's the question that will be asked. Every generation would need to... And, and the, for the most of Israel's history the majority of the people would not receive or or follow or walk in the covenant. And God would warn them and warn them and warn them until finally they were themselves vomited out of the land, so to speak, by the Babylonians. But throughout it all, there was a faithful remnant, a true Israel within larger Israel that was the people of God that did carry this seed promise all the way up to the time of Jesus who really it all came to a focal point on. And he was the true Israelite. And then in him, by keeping and bringing this covenant to its rightful conclusion, he then opened, inaugurated the new covenant. And he was then the, the mediator of something that would, that would basically take all of this and put it inside people. And open that up to Jew and Gentile alike. So the distinctions that separated Jew and Gentile would no longer be in effect, like food laws and circumcision and days of observance. 
And so that's why you see those things in the New Testament saying, no, you don't, those, those were this covenant. This covenant was broken and then the one who kept it brought it to its completion because that's the whole purpose of this covenant, which we'll see in the later chapters, and then brought about what this covenant had only prepared the people for. That's the new covenant. So that's why when we say, well, Christians, well, why don't you keep these Old Testament laws? Because this is not our covenant. This is the covenant with Israel that God made with Israel in the ancient Near East context setting. This is the covenant that was filled out, that was lived out, that was fully completed in Israel's Messiah. And so then that covenant that Israel's Messiah inaugurated that night in the upper room, this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many. That is the covenant that we live under. Those are the stipulations that we follow. So that's, it's, 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 it seems basic, but it, it's worth repeating over and over and over because so few Christians actually understand that. And so when they read the Old Testament, they start reading all these laws, and they're like, well, we've got to keep this and this and this, but we don't have to keep this one, and we need to keep this one but not this one. I don't know if we should keep this one or not. And it just becomes this, which ones do we keep, which ones do we don't keep? Well, the answer is we don't keep any of them, but we keep all of them. We don't keep any of them by the letter, but we keep all of them in the intention. The intention is what carried over into the New Covenant. The vehicle itself is what ended at the giving of the, the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And so we'll see how that unfolds, but right now we're getting into He's reinstating or, or renewing the covenant with this generation. So when you read these upcoming chapters, it's going to read a lot like Exodus, but there are going to be small differences. For instance, this generation is not going to live in the desert. This generation is going to live in the land. So the commandments that in Exodus were more geared towards this transition period of life in the desert for that generation, they're going to be rooted now in the land for this generation. Because this generation's done with desert time. They're, as soon as this ceremony's finished, they're in the land. And so that is part of the difference in when, when scholars try to say, oh, well, the laws in Exodus and Deuteronomy, they contradict, and it's because they're different sources. And diff no, no, they're different situations. Whenever a king and a, a vassal would renew a covenant after the death of one, they would change to reflect the situation. The king had the right to change any laws that no longer fit when he made the covenant with that generation. The covenant would remain, but the laws, how it was how it was carried out would change to match the circumstances. You know, like if there was an agreement between two countries that you'll give X number of ox carts worth of grain every year. Well, after the invention of the locomotive, you would change that. And it would be this many boxcars full of whatever. Like, that's a change. It doesn't change the intention. It just changes the way it looks as it's lived out. So that's a, just an easy to remember kind of example. Right? If somebody's, it changes with the time, but only in the external, only in how it's kept, not the actual principles of it. And he's going to reinstate these principles here in chapter 5, which is the, re, uh, the summary of the foundation of the covenant, which is the ten words. Ten words that change the world. You know, we call them the Ten Commandments, but they, they're called the ten words in Hebrew. And, and, and I don't know when it made the transition into commandments. But the ten words, they're the, most, they're the foundation of everything else. So, chapter 4, verse 44. This is the law Moses set before the Israelites. Or th literally, this is the Torah. 
Moses set before the Israelites. These are the stipulations, decrees, and laws Moses gave them when they came out of Egypt and were in the valley of Beth Peor, east of the Jordan, in the land of Sion, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon and was defeated by Moses and the Israelites as they came out of Egypt. They took possession of his land and the land of King Og of Bashan, two Amorite kings east of the Jordan. That's what we read all last year in Numbers, those battles that brought them to where they are now. This land extended from Aurora on the rim of Arnon Gorge to Mount Sion, that is Hermon, and included all of the Arba east of the Jordan as far as the Sea of Arba below the slopes of Pisgah. So again, historical prologue setting the stage, saying, now this is where we are. This is where we've come to. And basically this land that's described as everything that's today modern Jordan, all the way up to modern Syria, that side of the Jordan River. Israel's on this side. They're on this side. They're about to go into this side. So this is the final. Now, here it is. Moses summoned all Israel and said, Hear, O Israel, the decrees and laws I declare in your ear today. Literally, it says in your hearing in NIV, but literally in your ear today. Learn them. Be sure to follow them or guard yourself to follow them. The Lord, our God, made a covenant with us at Horeb. That's Mount Sinai. It was not with our fathers that the Lord made the covenant, but with us, all who are alive here today. Now that's a deliberately, that's, that's actually a lie, but it's in, an intentional lie. He is, it, it, the Lord did make it with their fathers, not with them. They were, most of them weren't even born yet. None of them were adults. But Moses knows that. This is intentional. He is saying, you are standing as the continuation of, of the people, your ancestors, your fathers, literally your fathers or grandfathers, they're dead. But God's covenant with them is not God's covenant with them. It's God's covenant with you. That's why it's being reinstated. So Moses is intentionally doing this. He is making a rhetorical move that's making this generation realize this is not with our parents. This is with us. This is our covenant. And that's what he does there. He says, the Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain. At the time, I stood between the Lord and you to declare to you the word of the Lord because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up the mountain. And he said, so this is all Exodus 19, Exodus 20. God appears on Mount Sinai, fire, you know, smoke, cloud, thunder, lightning, just really scary. If you've ever been in an incredible thunder and lightning storm, like magnify that and then add fire. And it's insanely scary. So it's not like the people were just like, eh, we don't want God. No, they're like, holy crap, this mountain's on fire and what are we going to do? And there's a voice speaking to us out of it and oh my gosh, you know, like it's that kind of thing. This is not just some little flannel board Sunday school picnic event. This is, this is a theophany. God Almighty in judgment. And the people are terrified. And so they're like, no, Moses, you go talk to that flaming mountain of doom. We're going to stand down here where it's safe. That's, what they, that's literally what they're thinking. And so, verse 6, uh, and he said, and then verse 6, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods, English and IV usually say before me, but it's literally, you shall have no other gods to my face. It's a way of saying in my presence. So it's not like, I've heard people preach on this and they don't know Hebrew, they just know English. So they're like, well, what it's saying is, you know, don't have any other gods before God. You know, so there's other gods, and there's the, but, but don't put them before God. God's really saying, just make me the top God. It's like, well, that would work if God had spoke this in English, but he didn't. It's in Hebrew, and he says, no other gods in my presence. 
before my face. Well, where is God's face? Where can you go and hide from his face? Nowhere. His face is everywhere. He is everywhere. So no other gods, period. This is not endorsing henotheism, henotheism where it's like big God and then the little gods under him. You hear that every now and then, and it's just the person usually doesn't know Hebrew. Um, then, so that's the first commandment. No other gods. Second commandment. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So this is now saying, now not only are you not going to have any other gods before me, you're not going to make an idol of me and worship it. This is one that we have a hard time relating to. Uh, we don't worship God through idols. In, in, after the Enlightenment, pretty much nobody in the Western world does. Everybody understands, oh, God's, you know, he's ethereal, he's spirit, blah, blah, blah. This is ancient Canaan and ancient Egypt. You didn't worship God without some form of an idol in the ancient world. You did not do that. This, no other ancient religion. Israel is absolutely unique in this. In all of the history of the world of the ancient Near East, Israel is the only people whose God demanded no representation of him visually. No image. This is not telling Israel not to make like little images of other gods. That's already ruled out from the first commandment. This is about doing what Aaron did at the golden calf. If you remember in Exodus, the golden calf was supposed to be a representation, not of Baal, but of the Lord. And Aaron said, look, this is the Lord that brought you out of Egypt. Like Aaron was trying to say, okay, they want to run after the other gods. Well, let's at least make sure they're worshiping the real God, but we'll do it in this form of how the Canaanites and the Egyptians worship their gods. And God's saying this, no, no, absolutely not. Because idolatry is an attempt to manipulate the spiritual realm to get something you want or to do something you want. And it's a way to control, it's a way to, to have the, literally have God in your pocket or on your hearth, your fireplace. And they, they didn't believe that the idols were actually God. What they believed was this idol was a touchstone. This idol was a, was a, was a focal point or, or like a conduit that the God, whichever one you're worshiping, if you, if you did the right thing with this idol, then that would appease the God and get the God to listen to you. It's very similar. Every the, every, almost every uh, form of worship in the world has this, but if you go to places where Catholicism has entered into and mixed with local animist cultures, like you see this a lot in the Philippines. Um, there's, you, you go to the Philippines and you get in a jeepney or a cab or somewhere around Manila, and there will be a little statue of a curly-haired, white-haired baby. And, and it's, it's Catholic-looking, it's like the baby Jesus. Sometimes there'll be a mother with it. But it's not the baby Jesus. It's actually called Santo Nino, the Holy Child. And they pray to Santo Nino, and it's venerated like the idols that, came, that were there before Catholicism came. You see this in parts of Africa and parts of India as well. Anywhere where there's an animist culture, and they're used to worshiping through idols, through touch points, there's a tendency to then associate that thing with the God. You actually even see this in like Catholic or Orthodox cultures here with icons or statues of the saint. Some Protestants sometimes even do it with their Bibles. You know, like, don't let your Bible touch the floor. Like, I've heard that when people are preaching. Don't let your Bible touch the floor. It's got, I'm like, where did that come from? No, don't make this an idol either. Like, 
It's what it's saying, not how you physically manipulate the object. You know, somebody burns a Bible, who cares? Doesn't matter. Other religions may get upset if you burn their holy books, but Christians should expect it. Okay, well, they're going to persecute us. They're going to denigrate us. They're going to, you know, it doesn't matter because our God is not tied to any particular physical thing. So God's telling them, and then he uses to emphasize it. He's saying, and, you know, God will not, you know, he's a, he's a jealous God. Um, how he says it is visiting the children or visiting the sin of the parents on the children of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. That, this is not teaching generational sin and there's a curse that you need to break off because your great-granddad was an alcoholic or whatever. Um, this is, a, you know, or somebody was a mason or a voodoo or this. I, all this kind of stuff gets read into this. The third and fourth generation were who lived in a house. The ancient Near East household in Israel was third and fourth generation. That was the common family structure. Grandparents, great-grandparents if you're lucky. If you're lucky, you live long enough to see your children have children and their children have children. So it was this fourth generation. That's a typical way of saying a single family unit. And the sin of the father would absolutely permeate and affect that family as the head of the household. And so there was a very, it's a very real way of saying corporately together you exist and God, there will be consequences. So if a family head is get involved in idolatry, that family is an idolatrous family. And they do not need to tolerate it. They need to drive it out. But what he says to contrast that with his judgment is he says, but showing love, showing devotion to thousand generations of those who love me and follow my commandments. A thousand generations is more generations that has ev- than has ever existed in human history. Like there have not been a thousand generations of humans on this earth. So it's a way of basically saying my judgment will, you know, be real on the family, on, the, on this generation. But if they walk in my ways, my love is to the thousands. My love is boundless. It's a contrast. His judgment is real, but it is so far outmatched by his love and devotion to the people who keep the covenant, which is the whole point of all of this. Then he goes on to say, the fourth commandment, or third commandment, you shall not, in NIV, this is where they kind of really weaken it. It says, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. I think King James shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Um, Literally, the wording is, you shall not lift up the name of Yahweh for nothing, in uselessness, in emptiness. That's where vanity comes from, in vain. Um, misuse is a little too, it doesn't capture the nuance. What it's saying is you shall not, to lift up the name is to invoke the name of God, to use the name of God, to associate the name of Yahweh Himself. His name, His actual name. God has a name. It's Yahweh. That name, do not use it for meaninglessness. Like if you use it, mean it. Because, He goes on to say, uh, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses, who lifts up in emptiness His name. Does this mean you can't say, oh my God? Well, not technically, but maybe. I mean, are you really crying out for God? You know, does it mean you can't swear, you know, like GD, you know, like maybe. I mean, yeah, that's part of it. But it, more foundational is using God's name to back your own agenda. So I would... I would argue, and some may disagree, I would argue when you say, oh, well, the Lord told me blah, 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 and he didn't, 
that's misusing his name. Well, the Lord wants me to... No, that's misusing his name. Well, I'm, I'm having an affair, but we prayed about it, and God said, no, it's okay, follow your heart. No, he didn't. God did not say that. You're misusing his name. People do this all the time. Think of every time people have misused God's name. It happened in the Middle Ages. It happened in the, the uh, you know, conquests with the, the colonizers and sending missionaries and converting the heathen by force and da da da. All this stuff, it happens in, it happens today. Just turn on the news. God says this. God anointed this person. God's doing this. This is a stern warning. God will not leave unpunished those who misuse his name. So when we use his name, be very, very, very careful is what this commandment is saying. Mean it. Mean it when you use the name of God. We're going to end with the, verse, uh, the fourth commandment. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. As the Lord your God commanded you, six days you shall labor and do all your work, your occupation. That's the word that's being used, the work for your job. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Usually people end there. And they're like, so yeah, so keep the Sabbath. Have a Sabbath day. It doesn't end there. It's not even half, we're halfway through the, ver- the commandment. It goes on. Nor your, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your ox or your donkey or any of your animals, the things that pull your plows, the things that tread your grain, nor the immigrant within your gates, even the foreigner who's living with you, so that your manservant, your maidservant, may rest as you do. So he's saying, you're keeping the Sabbath means everyone gets a Sabbath. It's not just you get a Sabbath, your people are out there doing the work, they're keeping your industry going, the only thing that matters is you're keeping your Sabbath. Nope, not in Israel. Because, verse 15, remember, you were slaves in Egypt. And that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you, y'all, to observe the Sabbath day. (laughs) Y'all. It's a communal thing. This is not a personal devotional thing. This is not just have your quiet time. No, 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 no. This is all work within Israel, all occupation People doing their jobs to make money to feed their families will stop for one day every week. Now, this got turned later into, well, what constitutes work? Well, you can carry your mat, but you can only carry it this many steps. You can do this, but you can only do this. I mean, it, even today you go to Israel and like buses don't run on the Sabbath. You're not allowed to use elevators on the Sabbath because pushing the button is deemed work. Um, like there's just all this stuff that people have added and heaped to it and jesus faced it in his own day he's like no guys chill the sabbath was people weren't made for the sabbath the Sabbath was made for us the sabbath was made to give all the people in the ancient world who did not have rest rest everybody gets a recharge even your animals from the highest to the lowest in society everyone gets to participate in god's rest there's no see in the ancient world it was structured it was delineated um like horizontally so it's like if you were above this class you got rest you're rich enough if you were below this class you worked and you didn't stop 
What God does is he takes that horizontal division and shatters it. He divides it vertically in time. You work, rich or poor, this many days, everybody rests here. Then you work, everybody rests. So God made this, it was like the first workers' protection you know, law in the ancient world. It applied to everybody down to the animals. So, the first four of these commands, we've got to wrap it up this week, but the first four commands all deal with something generally having to do with God and worship. And then this, the fourth command is like a hinge that starts to get into society. How does society worship God? And then the next commandments that come after that are going to continue that downward movement into family and then into community and reputation, and then it'll end where it began with the heart. The first commandment, there's no way to, there's no way to, to, to um, with the first commandment, there's no way to legislate it. Like, there's no way to enforce it. You have no other gods before me. Nobody could enforce that in Israel. You know, if somebody prayed to Baal, you can't really, I mean, it's a heart thing. Only you know if you have any other god before God. So the Ten Commandments start at the heart. Then they move out and address actually how you live. And then the cool thing is the final commandment, the tenth commandment, will bring it back to the heart. So the ten commandments itself, you could do a whole you know, month's worth of teaching on just the ten words. But we don't have that because we got to go. We're one minute over. So you guys have a great week. Bundle up if we get some snow. Um, if you want some seconds, you can grab some. There's some to-go boxes back there. Hop on the website if you've missed any of the previous studies. You know, subscribe to the podcast. You can listen 30 minutes a day, and you can catch all the way up to where we are in just a few weeks. Um, but anyway, have a great week. Bye.